You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 13th of October 2022 on Monocle 24. Iran's protests against hijab enforcement escalate into protests against pretty much everything. Vanuatu votes, but might the Pacific archipelago break a long-standing habit and elect a woman to parliament? And defeating conspiracy theorists, one lawsuit at a time. I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests Baria Alamuddin and Julie Norman will be here to discuss all the day's big stories and our On This Day historical feature considers Turkey's pioneering decision to pack up its capital city and move it elsewhere. Stay tuned, all that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller and I'm joined today by Julie Norman, lecturer in politics and international relations at University College London and by Baria Alamuddin, international journalist and broadcaster. Hello to you both. Hello. Thank you. Hi. Um, Bari, you have descended from somewhere glamorous, as usual. But where, where have you been this time? <laughs> Not glamorous, really. I, well, I was in L.A. and then I came to New York for that's, a week. That's sounding quite glamorous. Uh, yeah, you are referring to the gala dinner for the Cloney Foundation for Justice. Well, yeah, I mean, that, if, if that's I not am... glamorous, what is? I don't think I've ever been invited to a gala dinner of any kind. I am beyond proud of that uh, foundation because they serve in 40 countries and they serve justice around the world. And the more you look at the way justice is conducted around the world, the more you see how much this foundation is needed. And uh, I don't know if you know, but uh, Amal, my daughter, wrote a book about the right to fair trial. Mm -hmm. So it all coincides with the works they do. And and of course, George is is a pioneer in the work in Sudan. And uh, it it was just unbelievably uh, beautiful to see how everybody came together to help and also the rewards that people got. They're called the Albies. Mm -hmm. And you know who Albi is, of course. This is Al- Albi Sachs, who yes. ha- has been a guest on Monocle 24. Oh, wow. How impressive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so it, it was it was great. The people, of course, that gave the awards were very impressive. Michelle Obama was there. There was Nadia Murad. There was Meryl Streep and many others. But but all these people were there simply because of their interest in the, in the, uh, in the matter. And I'm sad to say that the press in the world talked about my daughter's dress which is not something I like. I mean, of course, the dress was very nice. (laughs) Thank thank you for clarifying. She is demanded to be elegant. But however, I'd like to talk about the Cloney Foundation for Justice and not her dress. Um, Julie, would you like to have a go at following that? <laughs> I, I think very little can top that, um, especially uh, these days starting school and uh, me limping around on a broken ankle. But I'll just say, uh, having worked in South Sudan, I can I can say firsthand that the the actual stuff this group is doing is, is actually impressive. This isn't just uh, people saying things. This is actually work on the ground that people are appreciating. So well done, you. Well, we will start tonight's show proper in Iran. Demonstrations which began nearly a month ago following the death of 22-year-old Masa Amini in the country 
custody of Tehran's morality police show little sign of abating. Attempts by Iran's security forces to contain the protests are reported to have killed at least 200 people. Nevertheless, the protesters keep protesting. It seems by now clear to all but Iran's regime that while the initial spark might have been the policing, by actual grown men paid by the state of the headscarves of women, the dissatisfaction is broad-based and widespread. Um, Bari, are you surprised that the regime is struggling to contain this? We've seen various uprisings and protests in Iran in recent years. The regime has traditionally cracked down hard and eventually got their way. In, in a way, I am, but I'm I'm so inspired. And I don't know if, if you read my column this week that the headline is, reads like this. These girls are Iran's future. This murderous regime belongs to the past. So you can imagine what's in it. Uh, this is very, very serious what's happening. And I cannot believe that the world is actually not giving the attention this really needs. Can you believe that they actually are going to schools, the Iranian regime and the besiege and, and the revolutionary guards, and taking these girls and putting them in mental institutions because they want to change that that attitude this is thinking this is reminding me of what china is doing with the yogurts and 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 what's happening this has to stop and the international community should stop look uh, you know turning a blind eye these are people that are yearning to just have a normal life they're not asking for anything uh, uh, much uh, uh, this is not also about that, that they want electricity and they want food and they want the normal things that you and I and everybody else uh, in, in the modern world take, takes for granted. Uh, th- th- these are girls that also want freedom. These are girls that are fed up with this theological, uh, uh, this, this uh, theology of, of old uh, religious men that know nothing about what they want. More than 40% uh, uh, of the population uh, are, are young girls in high schools. And these are the high schools. These are girls who are 13, 14, 15, 16 years old saying I want to live I want to be free so we we are we should be ashamed of ourselves seriously I just I think we should be out in the streets of London uh, demanding uh, that this uh, uh, this population gets help this is not about uh, just telling the regime change because these people have been there for 43 years this regime mm. and they did not change so this is about regime change this is the population at large and what's interesting is this has become now also uh, the, the workers in the chemical sector are, are taking to the streets also the, you have uh, some uh, five six uh, army people insiders of the regime like Ali Radijani who was the head of parliament is saying maybe we need to look at the way we deal with the hijab story but this is much more than the hijab story this is about the fundal right of women not to be treated in, in an apartheid way this is telling them that 
I'm just like the boy. I have a feeling. I have a brain. I have a human right. The regime itself, though, Julie, doesn't appear to have any other ideas beyond cracking down hard. It is, it is quite remarkable, even if you think, if you look at this situation in terms of its own self-preservation. They're giving themselves uh, no way out of this but confrontation. Um, Golam Hossein Mosseniegi, who's the chief of Iran's judiciary, has ordered Iran's judges to issue harsh sentences uh, over protests and rioting. Um, what strikes you as what's driving that? Does, that? does that give us some insight into their absolutely dogmatic determination that there is no room for compromise here? Well, I think it's unfortunately what they've seen work in the past. I mean, this is not the first protest movement we've seen in Mm. Iran, as notable and widespread as this one is, you know, 2009, 2017, 2021. So we've seen other uprisings, which the regime has quite effectively cracked down on, and they're using some of those same tactics now with killings and arrests and whatnot. Um, But I expect that as this moves from, um, you know, starting with with girls, with schoolgirls, to, as uh, as Barra said, to other sectors, you have oil workers now, uh, shopkeepers starting to strike around this. As this spreads out, I do think there will be a bit more conversations about how to contain this in a way that might be something like relaxing something like the hijab rules or something like that, but is far short of a revolution or regime change where many activists are now focused. They're doubling down. Uh, the, the regime itself, Khamenei, every day when he speaks, he doubles down. He he says, no, this is why they're taking these girls to brainwash them and tell them that they are wrong. So this does not really uh, uh, tell us that this regime is about to, to do a U-turn. Uh, I I believe that this regime, as murderous as it is, as, as bad as it's, it is to its own people, is also dangerous to the region, is also dangerous to the world. This is a regime that allows drug trafficking. This is a regime uh, that that uh, that has paramilitaries all around the area. In my country, Lebanon, we have Hezbollah. In Iraq, you have Al-Hajj al-Shaabi and PMU. And in, uh, in Yemen, you have the Houthis. So this is a, a regime. By its own theory, it says, I want this revolution to be given not only to the region, this should be spread all around the world. So this is a very fundamentally dangerous regime. That's a part of the difficulty there, I think, Julie, for the rest of the world in terms of of how to respond to this. Bari was talking earlier about the the relative silence from a lot of Western governments, but is that possibly attached to the fact that by now they have learned that if any given Western government pipes up on behalf of the people in Iran protesting, that is is fuel for the regime right there, isn't it? It, it plays into their narrative that this is all a sinister foreign plot. Right, well, that's exactly it. I mean, it's a tough um, needle to thread. And for, I think, the U.S. in particular, where, you know, we hear the Ayatollah saying specifically, this is all being stoked by the U.S., by Israel. And U- in fairness, it wouldn't be the first time. Exactly. There is a historical <laughs> precedent yeah. for this as well. Um, and so it, and, and so I think I think the admin- Biden administration is, is aware of that, and the U.S. has been in the past. I, I will say, even though this is not, um, you know, the top thing on, on everyone's headlines at the moment. It's still very, uh, it's well known across the world. And I do think the U.S. and other states are responding differently than they have in the past. Um, the U.S. has spoken out against it much more forcefully than they did in 2009 or even 2017. Uh, they have increased sanctions for whatever that is worth. Um, and quite notably, they have done an unprecedented move in terms of trying to ensure that Iranians do have access to social media and technology access and are trying to lift the sanctions there and work with 
with media companies to ensure that. So some steps that we have not seen in the past and some that are meaningful, even if a bit quieter than we would maybe like to hear in, in a place where there would be a bit more movement for that. I think this really falls short and and all this talk, 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 all these uh, uh, statements, this has to stop and this is nonsense. What they need to do is withdraw their ambassadors, for example. What they need to do is stop the Iranian planes traveling to our airports in the West. They need to be serious about what they're doing. Look what they're doing in Ukraine. But is there an issue issue there, though, that as as Julie was suggesting, Iran is so heavily sanctioned that there's not actually all that much further left to go well, with Iran, the sanctions. Iran is heavily sanctioned, but Iran finds a way not to be sanctioned and to make Iran has Iraq as its playground, has Lebanon as its playground, has Russia as its playground. So, uh, I, and I know Russia is, is heavily sanctioned. There are ways and means, and I really think and I believe this young amazing, beautiful girls deserve our attention and our our serious steps to be taken. Well, let's move along and look at Vanuatu, which, strange though this may sound, is sort of a related issue. Uh, Citizens in Vanuatu have been voting in a snap general election, which is interesting for a couple of reasons. One is the logistical challenge of organising such a thing, especially at short notice. Vanuatu's people are scattered among 65 inhabited islands and its electoral commission has all of eight full-time employees. The Royal Australian Air Force is helping to distribute ballots. The other is that Vanuatu is, at least as of this election, one of the world's few all-male parliaments. While some women have been elected in Vanuatu, the last was in 2008, and only eight women are standing for Vanuatu's 52 seats this time. Um, Julie, first of all, this is obviously suboptimal, and as we will be discussing, uh, representation of women in global parliaments is still largely sub suboptimal, but is it at least something? Is it encouraging in the slightest that this does now actually seem kind of weird? Because not all that long ago, even as recently as 34 years ago, I don't think anybody would really have remarked on an all-male or largely male parliament. Oh, absolutely. That's what I. That's what my thought when I saw this story. It's like, oh, this is a headline now because there's an absence of women in parliament rather than the opposite. And so rather than it being a, a striking thing that we're, we're seeing women running, it's a striking thing if we don't. Um, um, and with Vanuatu especially, I mean, this is a, a state, talk about states that are not uh, dominating the headlines. This is not one that most of us are, are following that closely. And yet it's important to us because uh, um, be, uh, it's important to us because uh, because we recognize that this, this element is something that we care about around the world. Um, Barry, are democracies, at least uh, what we think of as Western democracies in particular, getting any better at encouraging women into politics? Or is it more a question of women are starting to seize the initiative despite the obstacles? I think women should encourage themselves and each other. And uh, I'm, I'm happy to say that wh- when I go around the world these days, I see more and more of women. I, I will let you know in Europe, we have the head of the European uh, Ursula European uh, Commission. Commission. We have Christine Lagarde as the head of the Central Bank, European Central. We have Listras here, whatever you make out of that. <laughs> you have the Prime Minister of France. You have a Prime Minister in Italy, soon to be Prime Minister, uh, President in, in, in Greece. You have Prime Minister in Finland. You have one in Denmark and you have one in Estonia and you have a President in Lithuania. So that's 
that's quite impressive, I, I, I think. Is it enough? No. It should be 50-50. In my opinion, even 55-50, because I believe women have, have this uh, a way of being able to uh, really see details that men usually don't see. And also when it comes to wars and, and, and empathy, I think maybe women are a bit kinder. Where I come from in the Middle East, Oh, we are so far behind. We really lack, lack that. But improving. And places like the Emirates are improving. In my country, Lebanon, we elected more women to parliament. But more is needed. You're not alone in lagging, though. And, Julie, this is one of those fun moments where we hold you responsible for <laughs> the United States. It, it is quite weird. The US is slow on this. There are 435 representatives in the House of Representatives. Only 123 of them are women. That does seem really strange. Yeah, we, we were kind of at um, about 25% in both the houses. It's uh, just under 25% in the Senate and just over in the House. So it is rather low for the US, especially as the US holds itself as, you know, quite liberal and forward thinking on, on women's uh, issues. But I would say this is changing generationally. If you look at uh, freshman uh, congressional representatives and kind of incoming the incoming uh, groups, they have been much more uh, balanced in terms of gender. So I think this trend will continue. Um, you know, with that said, I think if there's not exact parity, I don't think that's uh, that's necessarily like a, a, that means that's, that there's not a room for women to, to be in politics, just that sometimes it's going to fluctuate. And uh, I, I see the, up, the trend is more important than the exact number. And sometimes just just to follow that up, because there is a related question about whether there is something uh, in the United States which makes it peculiarly resistant to the idea of female leadership. Obviously, we saw this absolutely cartoonish juxtaposition at the last presidential election, but one between whatever reservations you may have had about about her, an obviously supremely qualified woman, uh, versus whatever positives you may have seen in him, an obviously completely unqualified man. And yet, he won, and it's very hard to imagine that the reverse would have occurred. Yeah, well, this is this is interesting with uh, Hillary Clinton, of course, because she did win the popular vote with True Trump, as, as many people point out. So I think the idea that people didn't vote for her purely because of her gender is certainly true for a minority, but mm -hmm. I, I would say that was not the driving reason for most people who voted against her. She had a lot of uh, strikes against her. And uh, to come back to Barry's point, I would say, too, I, I should we should obviously celebrate the representation of women, but I, I push back a little bit the idea that women uh, necessarily bring a different kind of leadership to to the table. They sometimes do, but I think as we've seen with different leaders across Europe, whether it's Maloney or Thatcher or Truss or uh, leaders in the U.S. as well uh, who come from the more conservative side, that doesn't necessarily mean someone's going to be a feminist in the traditional sense. Um, they might be... Uh, well, you know, Thatcher certainly wasn't. Right. So I just I feel like and, and there might be different ways that people view their feminism as a woman leader. So I, I push back a little bit the idea that women are naturally going to be more emotive or inclined to feminist goals. We do see that happening some, but it's not a given. And I worry a little bit about essentializing women too much if we expect them to be spokeswomen for women just because they're in those leadership roles. I remember asking Margaret Thatcher when I interviewed her, I said, but you're not doing anything for women and you're a woman. And she said, well, let them do it themselves. So I, I, I see what you, but can I say about the, the United States, I, I worry about the role of women in the United States, especially because 
because of populism, because of what we're seeing with the far right, with what we are seeing with QAnon. I'm, I'm, I come back from the States heartbroken. I've never seen the United States like that, so divided, so unhappy. Uh, I, I really hope that things will change in that country because it's a dream for everybody in the world to be uh, to be in the States. It's not that anymore. Yeah, and I would agree. And just to say, I mean, the, some of the loudest voices on the far right are are women like Marjorie Taylor Greene and yes. some others. So, um, so again, I think that kind of goes to the point that um, we should celebrate that yes. presence, yes, but um, but it's not as clear cut as, as it sometimes seems. Well, on the subject, and thank you both for seamlessly teeing up the next item, on the subject <laughs> of loud voices on the far right, just and expensive desserts have been served up to talk radio tub thumper conspiracy theorist, snake oil merchant and tiresome blow hard Alex Jones. The InfoWars proprietor has been stung for another $965 million in the latest of a series of defamation judgments pertaining to his absurd claims that the 2012 massacre at Sandy Hook Elementary School in Connecticut was a hoax. It remains to be seen how much of this Jones ever pays. InfoWars has already filed for bankruptcy, and it seems sadly at least as unlikely that this legal damnation will shift much opinion among his large audience of angry yokels. To plaintiff Carlos Matthew Soto. Can't get blood out of a stone. Slander damages, past and future. $18,600,000. So this is what a show trial looks like. I mean, this is the left completely out of control, doing whatever they want, like drag queen story time, two men can have a baby. I mean, this is what they do. This is their, this is their, their panacea. You get a million, you get a hundred million, you get a 50 million. That was Alex Jones reacting in real time uh, to the verdicts against him. Uh, Baria, whether or not Alex Jones takes any of this seriously, whether or not he ever pays a penny of it, is this nevertheless a big win? Does it really mean anything? Morally, it does, but in reality, no, which is very sad. And, and what is sad is that we see people like Trump, like Alec John, like all these people getting away with things. He already is declaring bankruptcy. He's asking his people to pay for it. I, I just don't understand how this has gained what it ha- the base it has gained in the United States of America, because I've been so many times in that country, and people are truly kind, nice people. What you see now is angry, unhappy uh, people who are talking about leaving the United States of America while everybody else wants to go there. They're, they're, they're unkind to immigrants. They're, this has to stop. I, I believe there should be a movement in, in the states of of like-minded people. Uh, I'm not talking about the far left or anything like this, but people who have some some weight in the community uh, to talk to people frankly and telling them what damage they're doing, not only to democracy, but to the very fabric of society. This is becoming really serious in the States, unfortunately. Uh, Julie, once again, we're now going to hold you answerable for the behaviour of your, your, your entire country. Um, it's, it's not unique to the United States that you, you get a, a, a ludicrous bloviator like Alex Jones acquiring an audience. But it seems like everything in America to be much more 
magnified and much more intense and much more powerful a version of what you get everywhere else. Is, is there a simple way to explain why anybody believes anything Alex Jones says? It's such a good question, and I wish there was an easy answer. But I would say the polarization that Barry referred to before is... So ripe in the U.S., uh, partly because of our two-party system and the way things are falling along mm. that, and media is falling along that, too. And I think, um, you know, whatever one might think of it, many people feel very talked down to by what they see as the more elite or the mainstream media and that kind of thing. So any voice that seems to be a counter to that is one that is potentially appealing to some members of, uh, you know, of the country. And especially people who I think see themselves as critical thinkers and seeing past the the common narratives, the headlines. And so it's um, it's almost a catch-22 because we usually try and approach conspiracy theories with saying people need to be critical thinkers and think past fake news and these kinds of things. But in reality, it's people who think they are doing exactly that who tend to embrace it. But just to follow that up, what strikes me as a possible mistake of the last six years in the United States, and I may be about to betray the reason why I should never be hired in any position as any kind of political or media advisor, is that the so-called elites, whether it's the political elites or the media elites, have bent over backwards to try and address and understand the so-called forgotten left-behind people hasn't really helped. What would be wrong for example, with a theoretical president of the United States addressing a creature like Alex Jones and saying, this man is an idiot, and so is literally anybody who listens to him. Yeah, well, I think that's, I think that's why this ruling is helpful, because it allows Alex Jones and his, like, Infowars and his ilk to kind of be called out in that way that's harder to do with others. And I would just say his case was specific around libel, so, like, defaming mm. individuals. So it, it allowed this case to go forward in a way that you couldn't have a similar lawsuit around... Um, um, you vaccine denial or like Holocaust denial or other kinds of conspiracy theories in the U.S. This is specific to what he was defaming other people. And so it allowed, I think, several strong cases to come out. And I do think that kind of breaks through the wall a little bit to say this is someone that we can point to and say this is not right. There's going to be a huge penalty for this kind of thing and try and have some kind of deterrent effect. But uh, but you're right that it's uh, I, I think it will be in its usual echo chambers and his fans will will probably not. It, it, just the way he reacted in real time, I think, shows how he's still trying to appeal to his fans. But Barry, is, is it possible that the, the the kernel of hope here is that we've discovered a way of combating at some level the likes of Jones, which is that, I mean, a question I would be fascinated by the answer to, but you would never get from Jones, is the degree to which he believes literally anything he's ever said or whether he's just putting yeah. on a show. But if it can be demonstrated that there's no money to be made from this anymore, that this will this will be expensive and ruinous if you do this. Well, that is something actually to watch in the coming weeks and see if he's still going to get all these uh, tens of thousands and thousands and even one dollar. This is a demagogue. This is a dangerous man. And I'm a journalist and I love freedom of the press and freedom of thought and everything. But I think we are carrying this a little bit too much. There is a real threat of, of the societies in, in many places in, in the U.S. of disintegrating and fighting each other. There was a documentary two days ago on the BBC, too, and they were talking about civil war. Trump uh, people were talking about uh, collecting arms, and, and yes, we will fight if he doesn't win the second election. These are the people that believe the, 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 the election was stolen. People who know Trump believe that he actually does believe it. I don't think he believes it. 
I don't think he can believe it because he has seen all that. But this is serious. Even the January 6th, which has done unbelievably good work, is not even making any difference. We have the midterm elections coming. Let's watch and let's see. But honestly, this is very scary. And this is not scary for the United States. This is scary for the world at large. Well, let's move along to something of a much less seismic scale uh, occurring in Zagreb, where the mayor of the Croatian capital, Tomislav Tomasevic, has decided that he preferred the city's public conveyances in their original plain blue livery. Tomasevic has declared that henceforth Zagreb's trams and buses will be stripped of advertising. Aside from the revenue being, as he put it, of minimal benefit, Tomasevich decried the visual pollution of the ads and suggested that returning them to their traditional colour would also effectively return them to the citizens. Here is Guy Deloni on this morning's Globalist. If, if we're looking at the, the great tradition of putting adverts on the side of public transport vehicles, there's nothing new about this. I mean, you can see pictures from uh, early in the 20th century where there's, you know, adverts for Bovril or something on the side of a London omnibus. Uh, so this, this isn't a new thing at all. And it's been a way, of course, that cities have tried to get a little extra bit of money into their coffers. You've got this, this mobile advertising real estate, if you like, and exploiting it is, you know, an, an easy hit, you would have thought, for... Uh, a lot of city authorities around the world. However, Tomislav Tomasevic says that isn't the case in Zagreb, that all of this advertising on the sides of the trams and buses is only bringing about half a million euros a year into Zagreb's coffers, and that's bearing in mind that it spends, now it said one billion kuna is is what they spend at the moment on, on public transport in Zagreb, and that's more than 100 million euros a year, quite a bit more than 100 million euros a year, so they're saying that it's a drop in the ocean uh, to be getting half a million for, from, uh, from, from advertisers that make your trams look like roast chickens. Guy Delaunay speaking to The Globalist earlier, in fact. There's an L in earlier. You would have thought I'd have learnt that by now. Um, Barry, what do you think? Do you prefer your public transport unadorned and not to look like roast chickens? To be honest with you, I drive uh, I, I, and I find it distracting, all these advertisements on the buses and and, uh, I, and I don't find it attractive. I, I, I would rather look at beautiful things. If it is something beautiful, then yes. If it's not, then not. But I didn't know that it pays so little so maybe it's not worth it to pollute our our eyesight and our cities. And on the other hand, my brother is an advertisement. <laughs> he would like me to say that. So uh, let me be, uh, you know, on the safe side of well, that. But yes, no, I wouldn't like I wouldn't like advertisement on buses. And, uh, what if, Julie, it did make proper money? Like, I mean, on the one hand, it sounds like we're being incredibly glib about half a million euros, which is it's more than I make in a week. Um, <laughs> but 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 in in the in the context of a, a decent sized city's transport budget, obviously it's it's beans. But what if it was sufficient money that it did actually make a difference to fares, for example? Oh yeah, I'm I'm actually quite in favour. I, I I come from Washington D.C. where the metros have like no ads except for like metro, and so and then when I go to other cities, I'm like, why don't they just like have advertisements? Like we can deal with the ads because. Because there the fares are so much higher than anywhere else simply because they don't do the advertisement. So I think for people who are using transit, like if you can bring the fare down, like it's fine if there's a couple ads up. And I will also say I love seeing movie ads on buses. Like it's one of my favorites. So I'm kind of fine with it. They have these ads, the videos, the little videos they have. Those are hideous. Those those are just infuriating. And repeating them and and repeating them. And when you've just got off a long 
flight is yeah. literally the last thing you want <laughs> is to be screeched at yes. by a small video screen in the back yes. of your taxi. Yeah, I'll, I'll vote against. Um, that said, uh, is is there a balance? And I'll ask you, Barry, you were saying that you preferred things to just to look plain and simple and beautiful, but if you take too many ads out of a cityscape, does it start to look a bit weird? Do you start to feel like you're somewhere in, in Leipzig in 1974? Maybe at the very beginning, but how about, like, putting some more flowers on our uh, windows on buildings and things like that? We can always beautify the city and maybe add colour when it comes to old stones or something. I don't know. I, I have to think about the beauty side of this. But yes, I, I anything that makes it more beautiful my, for my eyes to see, I would go for it. But I don't like too many messy things around. There's already mess around us enough. So I'm, I'm, I'm for classical music and calmer, <laughs> calmer atmospheres. I, I don't disagree with that, but I will say I used to live in Canada when I used to have to do road trips. I was mm. like, please just put up a billboard for something. Like I would look at anything because oh. it was just so long and flat to drive anywhere. So I'm kind of a fan of the ads. And uh, I will say too, as an avid bus rider at the moment with my broken ankle, I, I just want to give it a shout out to all the bus drivers who are uh, being very kind. So oh. uh, And you, you have now bought back to my mind, my subconscious had deleted at childhood road trips across the Hay Plain in western New South Wales, which I will put up against any stretch of Canada as the <laughs> dullest thing to look at. Like there's, there's, there's like three trees out there. I've counted them. It's oh, on. You it's need on. more trees and more flowers <laughs> then. <laughs> uh, Barry Alamuddin and Julie Norman, thank you both for joining us. Finally, uh, on today's show, he said, leafing frantically through the script for the right bit. I'm, ju I'm just, I'm just padding here. It's, it's, it's here somewhere. It is here somewhere. It's always in the last place you look. It's our On This Day historical series. Sticks with the subject of civic pride. It considers the theory and practice of moving or building afresh a national capital. Countries move their capital cities for all sorts of reasons. Germany moved from Bonn back to Berlin when the country was reunited in 1990. Nigeria moved from Lagos to Abuja in search of a central, neutral and less chaotic location in 1975. Kazakhstan moved from Almaty to Astana in 1997 and then underwent an amount of indecision re-what to call it. Ivory Coast moved from Abidjan to Yamasukro in 1983 because the president of the time was born there. Indonesia Asia is presently planning to move its capital from Jakarta to a location on Borneo on the grounds that Jakarta is literally sinking into the Java Sea. And Turkey had its reasons for passing on this day in 1923 the law that relocated its capital from Istanbul to Ankara, and we shall get to them presently. However, if one of the reasons was hoping to forestall annoying novelty records by zany Canadian doo-wop acts, the Turks were to be gravely disappointed. The four lads had a hit with this as late as 1953. Even worse, they might be giants covered it in 1990, though we hold our listeners in far too high esteem to subject them to that. More auspiciously, the same song is referenced in PJ Harvey's Let England Shake, though we may be deviating from the point here somewhat.
Ankara's ennobling as the capital of modern Turkey was, like a great deal else of modern Turkey, an initiative of Mustafa Kemal Atatürk, who had been a senior officer leading the defence of the Ottoman Empire during World War I, but who by the 1920s was fighting both what remained of the Ottomans and an assortment of European powers intent on carving the defeated empire up. Atatürk, struggling to establish an independent, secular Turkish Republic, had set up shop in the centrally located Ankara, then a smallish settlement known as Angora, most popularly associated with wool shorn from fine-haired goats and rabbits and a breed of white cat. By 1923, Atatürk had won his war and his republic. Relocating the capital to Angora and Turkicizing its name to Ankara was just one of an ambitious schedule of reforms intended to completely expunge what Atatürk perceived as dissipated Ottoman backwardness and jolt Turkey into the modern age. It was Atatürk who imposed surnames, the Latin alphabet, and some sort of division between church and state, abolished the fez, and cracked down on such menace as was posed by Turkey's orders of whirling dervishes. There's not a lot of audio of Atatürk speaking, at least which hasn't been set to irritating, stirring music by online enthusiasts, but there is this. <laughs> Karşılıklı olduğuna emin bulunduğum muhabbet ve samimiyetin tabii menşeyi hakkında birkaç söz söylemek isterim. Atatürk transformed his country, but no part of it more than the town he made its capital city. Ankara today is home to nearly six million people, and in the ebbingly likely event of Turkey ever joining the EU, would be the second biggest city in it, after Istanbul. Though Ankara wasn't completely built from scratch, it is sufficiently unrecognisable as old Angora to also qualify for the club of artificial purpose-built capitals, along with Canberra, Brasilia, Islamabad, Washington DC and others. These cities often end up serving as inadvertent metaphors for the development of the country they govern, and not always in good ways. In Ankara today, 99 years after it was pronounced the capital of a modern secular republic, Ataturk's mausoleum glowers a short drive from the ghastly thousand-room palace recently commissioned and now resided in by his incumbent successor, who appears to have mistaken himself for one of the decadent sultans that Ataturk was trying, physically and philosophically to get away from. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller. And that's all for this edition of the Monocle Daily. Thanks to our panellists today, Julie Norman and Baria Alamuddin. Today's show was produced by Lillian Fawcett and researched by Emily Sands. Our sound engineer was Sarah Nicholl. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily returns at the same time tomorrow. Thanks for listening.